Hello listeners, this is David Blakesley, welcoming you to episode 106 of Criterion Reflections, a podcast going through the Criterion Collection in chronological order, except for this episode and the previous one, we're kind of not. We're kind of doing some background uh, contextual presentations as we look at uh, the work of Jean-Luc Godard in this kind of pivotal era from 1966 which and 67, which was kind of the focus of our previous episode. This is part two of a three-part series where we're going to talk about Godard's work from 68 to 71, several of the films, of course, produced in collaboration with Jean-Pierre Garin, and then uh, episode three in the sequence will be the next one, which is on Garin and Godard's Tu va bien and Letter to Jane. So uh, as was the case last week, um, or last episode, I'm joined by John Lobinger. So John, welcome back again. Thank you for picking up the conversation with me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back on. Excellent. Yeah. So it's uh, it's been a couple weeks actually since we recorded our previous episode. That's given us, I think, ample time to delve into this uh, Arrow box set, uh, which is titled Godard and Goran, five films, 1968-1971. We're also going to toss in uh, Le Gai Savoir, or The Joy of Learning, which is a film that Godard began in early 68, I believe, uh, after Weekend, or maybe as, as Weekend was kind of um, premiering in, in late 67, he was filming Legay Savoir, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but uh, even though it wasn't formally released until 1969. So we've got six films altogether that we're going to be discussing to some degree of depth. I, I don't anticipate we're going to go real long on any of these particular films um, because one, I'm speculating that a fair number of listeners probably haven't watched the films themselves, but might just want to be interested in uh, hearing our take on the films and kind of the impressions we we got from watching this little uh, you know, kind of this uh, interval of, of Godard's career. And just for the sake of time, that's, that's a lot of movies to cover. And I don't really plan on doing two or three hours worth of uh, podcasting today, but Hey, we'll see where the conversation leads. Right. Uh, so John, you know, um, 
yeah, we kind of, let's just pick up the conversation where we left off last time. I know that when we were getting to weekend, uh, the clock was definitely running out on us. And I know I didn't really prep you for this, but is there anything else from weekend that we want to touch on at least real briefly before we get into the, you know, the, the formal uh, uh, agenda for what we have planned for today? Oh gosh. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, just that's throwing it. a couple balls to sort of warm things up, right? <laughs> no, no, no. That's perfect. So I'm gonna I, it, to show my gratitude for your curveball question, I'm gonna give you a curveball answer. I sure. I saw Toot Vabien, which I'm not gonna say very much about at all because I wanna save that for the awesome crew you're gonna get together for the third episode in this series. Mm-hmm. But I watched that movie and I was blown away by the extent to which it felt like Godard was responding to some of the things I was saying uh, about the career decisions he made after weekend <laughs> in Toot Vabien. So mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm actually have a tremendous amount of respect for that film. And uh, I just, I, I because I, I re-listened to our episode together. I do not often listen to podcast episodes after I record them, but I really wanted to, revisit some of the things that you were saying um mm-hmm. in 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 our previous podcast on Godard's uh career at this time and right wh- right after I finished listening to our episode I then watched Tout Va Bien and it was as if Godard was in direct conversation <laughs> with some of my <laughs> criticisms and some of the things I had said yeah. so I have a very healthy respect for the filmmaker um you know who could uh so directly engage his uh his audience Okay, good. Well, yeah, I think we are kind of at this pivotal point because Weekend was kind of a a, a sort of a quasi-apocalyptic rupture of of what Godard had been doing up to that point. And we kind of went on at length about the changes in his personal life, uh, the political, cultural situation in, in France in late 67, uh, you know, the, the rise of kind of this uh, idealistic student uh, radical uh, left activism, uh, kind of Maoism as kind of a, a third way between the Soviet version of communism and uh, the imperialism and capitalism of the West led by the USA. Uh, and also, I think Godard was probably just burned out uh, as a cinema you know, figure, uh, even though he didn't necessarily go into retirement. He was really just looking to reset. And, and I feel like uh, going through these these six films that were you know are kind of in front of us today had somewhat of a similar effect on me. It got me just reassessing uh, a number of you know priorities. Um, you know, there's a lot of heavy content here about politics and about our uh, society and and what direction things are going. And much of it, of course, is is very topical, very time focused on. 67, 68, the specific circumstances of the of the student-led revolutionary movement, uh, the attempt to you know sync all of that energy with the you know concerns of the working class, the laborers, uh, and this what seems like a pretty literalistic adaptation or application of um, Marxist-Leninist theory to current events, uh, and we can talk about some of that from a historic point of view, but it also just got me thinking about my life and these times that we're in. And, uh, you know, that, that may have something to do with 
other types of assessments. I mean, I turned 60 years old recently. Um, just I'm just one of the, in one of those kind of reflective phases that I go through every so often. Um, anybody who uh, maybe follows me on social media might notice that I haven't been very active, very participatory lately. I mean, I'll check the feed and throw a few likes out there, maybe make a comment or two, but I haven't been making TikTok videos. I haven't really been doing a lot of expressive stuff. Um, just been thinking a lot and watching movies, taking some notes, writing things down. Uh, but a lot of it's just kind of stirring around in my head. And so I'm looking forward to <laughs> this conversation, not to make it so much about me. Uh, I don't really necessarily need to go too deep or too explicit with some of those, you know, personal applications, although it may come out as as the conversation proceeds. But it, yeah, John, let me just ask you this. I mean, what was kind of, what's your, uh, what's this process been like sitting through the, the films in this box in particular? Uh, these are pretty arch films. They're, they're not... Uh, casual toss it in you know the player and have some viewing pleasure there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here but before i start shaping your answer too much uh what was kind of your overall response to just this this series of films yeah so i have uh (laughs) (laughs) i have two answers to that question i'm going to give the second answer first uh i had like the canned answer or the answer I watched the films on two different occasions. One was each of the, I watched the Guy Savoir uh, earlier on uh, through Canopy. And then I I got Arrow, um, the Arrow streaming service, so I could watch uh, the films that were in the uh, Garin Godard box set. Um, And so I watched them with some space and without thinking too much about it and just, uh, just sort of doing it. And, um, and so I have my response. It's like purely aesthetic and, you know, just watching it with a certain amount of space and a certain amount of relaxed setting. But I realized that the second time I'm, I was actually late to recording this podcast because I was sort of cramming through over the last 24 (laughs) hours trying to rewatch some of these. And I'm not exaggerating. I experienced some vertigo, I think. Mm-hmm. from just the stress of watching these <laughs> films and trying to cram yeah. them all in i can i can easily recommend do not try to watch or try to binge these films it's just no. it's too much and to try to under to try to really wrestle with some of the things that he's doing some of the ideas that he's presenting uh in any way beyond beyond like purely superficial it's just uh, it's just too much to do and in one sitting, I wouldn't recommend attending the uh, 24-hour uh, Godard Garin marathon uh, at your local Cineplex anytime soon. <laughs> I think that's a great answer, and and I, you know, I I did a similar binge on Friday. I, I actually took the day off of work, and so I got up early in the morning and just popped them all in the player as much as I could sort of withstand. I, I had watched Vladimir and Rosa, which is the the final film in the in the Arrow set. Uh, the night before. So I watched that one on Thursday. So I didn't get a full rewatch of that on Friday. And then yesterday was very busy. So I did as much as I could. In fact, it's kind of playing on background muted right now um, on my, on my uh, large 
monitor here that I'm using while we podcast. So, so there will be some visual impressions that, that, that will filter in, but you're right. The, the actual didactic content of these films, the, you know, the, the lectures and the theory and the you know, historical references, it's pretty deep. I mean, these, these films probably would be worthy of a book length, uh, annotations if you really wanted to extract all of the meaning and all of the input that, uh, you know, Godard, Goran, and perhaps some others invested in, in putting these films together, which isn't necessarily to say that they're remarkably deep and brilliant and, you know, scholarly because they're kind of slapped together, but it's a reflection of just how immersed in this, uh, political, um, Marxist Leninist ideology, uh, Goren or Godard and Goren in particular, uh, and their crew were, and and that's what really strikes me. Before we start getting into you know discussions of the films themselves, is you know especially with the five films in the Arrow set, what Godard seems to have seriously been attempting to do is applying his skill set as a as a movie maker, as a guy who knows how to you know set things up in front of a camera put a script together, get a crew on focus and directs his actors to do different things. He took all of those skills, all those techniques that he'd been developing throughout the sixties and is now employing them. And again, I, the, the seriousness of what I think his purpose is here is what strikes me. He, he's employing all of those talents to this uh, idea that by producing this new kind of political cinema, he can actually, make uh, a difference in fulfilling what appears to be kind of a dogmatic belief uh, from a purely Marxist-Leninist version of, of, uh, you know, history and and interpreting events that the revolution of the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie would be advanced as a result of these films. In other words, he's trying to make cinema that will uh, further the cause of this, you know, seemingly inevitable political revolution, which would result in the dictatorship of the proletariat, you know, the ownership of the means of production by the working class, and, you know, the symbolic, metaphorical, and also literal death of the bourgeoisie. There was a kind of a a rationale that that a violent overthrow of the current uh, existing social and political and economic order was justified because of the cruelty, the corruption, the exploitation of the bourgeoisie over the proletariat. And and I mean, I, I, I think my claim here is backed up that this was not just a joke. He was not just being ironic uh, because there are such extensive quotes of the Communist Manifesto and references to Chairman Mao and his sayings. And I've actually been spending a fair amount of time reading that material as, as well as watching these movies because when you really sit down and listen to what's going on, that's exactly what you're getting. You're getting this reinforcement that that the uh, the revolution is is here, and uh, there's and and when you look at the you know, the first film, a, a film like any others, which is intercut with some pretty compelling black and white documentary footage of some of these riots that were happening in Paris in May of '68. I can I can sort of understand getting swept up in all of that and saying, yeah, this is it. Here it is. We are about to tip the balance and really upend the order of things. And of course, we know, you know, fifty odd years later that that's not exactly what happened. In fact, that's not really close to what happened. It was a it was a moment, 
and uh, you know, history went on in in, uh, in other directions. But I, I don't know. What's your thought on that? I mean, as far as Godard's purpose in you know not just abandoning the type of movies he'd been making or the the production system, uh, the aesthetic, but he's really trying to you know uh, you know further the revolutionary cause and enlist others to join in and and make this you know make this prophetic thing happen. I thought that was a, that was a great setup. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I know that in the last episode, perhaps at times I might've been a little bit flippant about some of the, the stated goals and um, the different ideals of that time. And perhaps it's just like, you know, perhaps it's just like cynicism or, or knowing the ending 50 years later, but you're absolutely right. One, one ought to take very seriously Godard's, stated goals as a Maoist or a Marxist-Leninist um, at this time and how that informs the films. He, I think, uh, I think there's also some documentation that some of what gets put into the films at this period aren't just his rejection of Hollywood or the rejection of, you know, um, mainstream communism or capitalism. It's also just... He had some real difficulties in getting films made and getting films showed that I think introduces itself into some of the constraints you see in these films. I think um, I think he had, you know, beyond the personal stresses that we mentioned last time, he also had like a lot of money issues during this period Mm -hmm. and was taking money from people for projects he never intended to finish or taking that money and putting it into other projects or giving the money to freedom fighters, you know, like um, I think that there are additional constraints that visit themselves in these films beyond just the purely like, Hey, I want my political to match my aesthetic. And on top of that, I'm working with all of these radicals and these activists and they're informing my new style of filmmaking i think there are some other components (laughs) that come into play here oh yeah other than just strictly the ideological which you know i i would guess is still probably the primary factor at least in you know at least in british sounds i think at Mm -hmm. that point some of the other issues that pop up in later films that i have with those films um you know, he doesn't have any of the money issues that I think and the production quality issues that he has in later, later movies and British sounds is, I think the purest form and the guy Savoir, although that the guy Savoir was mostly finished before May of 68. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that they're in the editing and some of the things that are brought into the film after the fact, I think you start to see it, but I think British sounds is probably the template for what all of these, you know, the Gorin, Godard, the Giga Vertov, uh, like films would have been if he had, hadn't been experiencing so many constraints. It's a long way of saying, I totally yeah. agree with you. We have to introduce <laughs> yeah. the nuance though, of mm-hmm. this is a guy that was living hand to mouth and was like, you know, uh, robbing from Peter to, to rob from Paul right afterwards. So like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, be- because he, 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 also has a certain way of going about making films. I mean, he cannot completely detach himself from sort of the the wheel of karma, if you will, of all the things that he'd done before. I mean, he he had a certain style, a stance, an attitude, a, a practice of of how to make movies, 
there was certainly a pretty definitive break, but it's not like he just quit here and started from this position of of strength and purity for this new vision. He, you know, in fact, uh, with Weekend being the end of cinema, uh, you know, you get get the fan, you could sort of draw an implication that you know, he's done making movies. Well, not at all. I mean, in fact, Le Gay Savoy, as you mentioned, was pretty quickly in production, right, as Weekend was kind of doing its its theatrical uh, circuit. Uh, the, like, and So let's get into these movies and start discussing them particularly. So Le Gay Savoy um, was a made-for-TV production, which is very significant. It was the first uh, such uh, experience that Godard had making a film expressly for broadcast television. I think it was uh, commissioned by uh, a government agency, a French government agency. They they wanted him to, to to do something, and I'm not sure exactly how that system works. But what he did is he, he cast uh, two familiar faces. Of course, one Jean uh, Pierre Lyon, uh, 400 Blows, and also a very frequent collaborator with Godard in particular, Les Chinois, you know, right before this. And so, yeah, there's a very quick carryover. In fact, um, Kino produced Blu-rays of both Les Chinois and Legay Savoir, um, uh, you know, kind of a simultaneous release Blu-rays. That's the versions that I have and have watched, uh, Leod being in both of those films. So there's definitely not just periodic continuity with Godard, but Leod himself kind of connects those two films together. And then Juliette Berto, who we discussed a bit in our previous episode, um, she takes on a very prominent role. She was more of a support bit player, a, a young woman around the same age, maybe a little bit older than Anne Wiesemski, who at this point was uh, Godard's wife. Um, and so there's all of that. But it's, you know, to me, it's a very visually striking presentation. Uh, most of the shots are the actors in kind of close-ups of their face, their head against a very pure black background. The, the setting is that they're in an empty TV studio at night, having these discourses with each other, these dialogues, just about, uh, as the film implies, the, the joy of learning and, and how we how we pick up knowledge, how we communicate it, how we transmit it. Of course, again, a, a lot of overtones of the, the politics of the day and, and just all of the things that were going on around them and then sort of what you might consider the usual types of intercuts of uh you know graphic design advertising marketing propagandistic stuff so you know these ironic contrasts between what's being said uh and the visuals you know that are kind of rolling over the top of that soundtrack um yeah you know kind of give me kind of a first impression of Le Gay Savoir and, and again I don't know that we're going to go real deep into analyzing yeah, each key scene, but let's just kind of hit the highlights and, and uh, you know, take it from there. What are some of your thoughts? So this is, this is a movie that I did like originally. I had the impression of, I mean, part of it is just, again, uh, when Leod and Berto are on screen, those are just two of the strongest Godard avatars mm-hmm. possible. And so even though this is, I, in my mind, I sort of have this, um, pigeonholed a little bit and perhaps it's an oversimplification but a little bit of a it felt like to me a stripped down version of lush and was with it has a lot of godard's didacticism uh front and center and but it's you know it's often just two one or two actors 
and just a black screen in the background. Maybe they're watching television or, or, or they're listening to something, but it's a very, very stripped down film and it's just heavy on ideas, heavy on content voiceover. Um, uh, but you know, not really giving you all that much in terms of plot and narrative or any of those traditional things you would expect, but at least it has this, you know, it's visually appealing. It's, um, as you said, it's striking. It's, uh, uh, and you know, has two of my favorite people, um, um, from the, from the new wave, uh, uh, present. One of my difficulties in this film is I was never able to go back and this is such a dense film. I've never been mm-hmm. able to go back and rewatch it because I had it on, I had it access to it by canopy and Canopy mm-hmm. found out that my uh, library card from Boston has been revoked. So oh. I was never able to go back <laughs> okay. and rewatch it. Yeah. And this is a movie that certainly invites that sort of uh, close focused attention that I was never able to go back and give it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, Godard, because because the film didn't get very good distribution, it was not shown in French TV as it was intended for a number of years. I think mid-70s it might have had a brief, you know, run or whatever uh it it was given some theatrical release overseas um but art actually had the script printed up as a book <laughs> which is probably as as valid of a way of taking in the content as watching the film in fact a book might actually help with retention of ideas when they're presented in such you know like i say density and and and, and rigor you know uh, I'm not used to watching movies where you've got to really, you know, stop, think about what's being said because there, again, there's a, there's a lot of meat. There's a lot of substance. Now you may not agree with, with all of what's said. It may not align with, uh, one's personal political philosophy or view of history or whatever, but, um, it is, it's, it's not the kind of film that you can say this scene or, or that segment really jumps out. In fact, I'm at the same place, even though I've watched it twice. The second time was with the commentary track, which was really almost like a podcast of its, of itself by a scholar who has been spending more time than I have studying this particular film, but he doesn't really, you know, elaborate on what's happening on the screen as he's, it's not a commentary where he's watching the film and with a few exceptions, you know, pointing out, here's something to think about, or here's some background information. It's really more of a lecture about, you know, what Godard was up to at this particular juncture of his career. So while it's helpful for providing context, it doesn't, I don't think, create lots of illumination on what's going on. So yeah, that is my, my main takeaway is the aesthetics of the, of the way that they're lit of the, the charisma of these, you know, this young man and woman, uh, and, and just recognizing the, the, the time and, and the circumstances in which they're, they're speaking their part. Uh, this film and a lot of these probably would, would help, if they were taken as part of a five or six week course where you could watch the film or even just selected scenes and then have a kind of a processing conversation with a group, maybe led by a professor or a facilitator to say, okay, well, when he said this or put the quote up on the screen and give us a chance to interact with it. And I don't think neither John nor I are prepared to lead that kind of a conversation. So, you know, I'm, I'm fairly willing to keep our take on Le Gay Savoir at this, at, at this kind of fairly brief kind of um, high altitude uh, takeaway uh, uh, pronouncement. What do, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, that's that's uh, that seems on par with like, for instance, you and I have both mentioned that we're reading uh, closely everything in cinema, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the working mm-hmm. life of Jean-Luc Godard by Richard Brody and Brody fairly quickly <laughs> passes by a few of these films, but fairly quickly passes by Le Guy Savoir. And um, basically to say that this isn't even though this comes at the time that it does, where you might chronologically group it with the Giga Verta films, that it isn't really the direction he's going because his, you know, everything that happens, not just in May of 68, but really, you know, the, the year of 1968 um, in, in France and in film and in, you know, Jean-Luc Godard's life that he is going in a, a, a very different direction, hardtack left and lots of different aesthetic choices he's going to start making. And the guy Savar doesn't really fully mm-hmm. fit into the chronology, partly because so much of it was filmed before, um, uh, before everything happened in May of 1968. Um, and so basically that's all that is said about the guy yeah. Savar in the, in mm-hmm. the book. Yeah, it's it's a transitional work. It's it's uh, Godard dabbling in television. I mean, it, again, this is thirty five millimeter, so the the Blu ray is really nice. I mean, it it kind of has this nice glow to it, especially if you like that deep inky black. You know, the the visual mm. presentation is is top shelf. It really is great. And again, Berto and Leod are very photogenic young people, so there is. Oh, a David, pleasure. the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, the other yeah. thing I did want to say. Um, was that you pointed out that French TV rejected the mm-hmm. or decided not to broadcast this? It wasn't, and it wasn't released theatrically in France until 1977. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is definitely <laughs> going to be a running theme. The number of countries that re- that paid for and then decided, or, or you know, uh, gave overtures to Godard that they wanted him to produce something for them, and that they never eventually released, or that they were rejected or not broadcasted in those countries. Like he's going to rack up a pretty good, a pretty good passport of uh, of <laughs> yeah. of national rejections <laughs> over the mm-hmm. next, you know, over the over the next couple of years and and several projects. Well, and if you look at his filmography, I think Wikipedia has it all on the table. It seems like there's almost as many films that he actually worked on or started, but never actually completed at all. I mean, there's, or, or films that are not even, we can't even really fit him into this episode, but like Far From Vietnam, which is a kind of a uh, an omnibus film where he did a short portion uh, with that. And then uh, the, the Sympathy for the Devil 1 Plus 1, which he filmed with the Rolling Stones at the Olympic Studios in London as they're actually working out that song. So I, I actually... Listeners will know that I, I'm going to use that uh, musical intro at the beginning of the episode, uh, even though we're not really going to discuss it. I mean, he was super busy and he was a name and he was being courted by different, uh, you know, distributors, people who wanted to sort of tap into the Godard uh, mystique and, and have him make a movie. And so, again, this this whole process of just whipping something together putting it out there with your name on it. I, I know in the previous episode, I made a number of references to the Beatles, uh, but I do think that some of these films are kind of like uh, Godard's um, two virgins <laughs> or life with the lions, these kind of one-off kind of bizarro LPs that John Lennon was releasing under his own name. Of course, collaborations with Yoko Ono. Uh, they're not officially really part of the Beatles uh, discography at this point, 
but they were commercial products that were being put out there. And you listen to them now and say, what in the hell were they thinking? You know, uh, because it's, it's, it's just, it's just loose recordings. It's random bits. It's improv. And, and there was a market, there was a, a even an appetite or a desire to see what these great genius, you know, cultural media savvy figures would say if you just sort of give them an open mic and say go for it that's kind of what you see happening a lot here and and also that little hand-to-mouth one step beyond uh, apprehension you know when he's kind of wheeling and dealing and pulling his shenanigans to get some funding to pay some bills i mean we talked about like two or three things i know about her was a movie that was made to get funding so that this other producer could could uh, shield himself from some of the debts that were coming due. So, I mean, the, the flim-flam angle here is also another really interesting thing, you know? So you've got sincere politics, you've got a response to the youth culture, you've got Godard sort of beginning to approach middle age and maybe having a little bit of a crisis now that he's hanging out with all these teenagers and young adults and being very much influenced by them. Uh, as much as he's also influencing them, so yeah, just such a such a fertile mix, uh, maybe even somewhat explosive of, of influences and impulses that are going on as he's pursuing his movie making craft. So, uh, do we want to go on to a film like any other, or is there any other response to any of that? No, a film like a film like so the in. The English translation that I wrote down is a film like the others, uh, yeah. but I guess a film it's, like any others. Or it, it's, I'm just trying to avoid mispronouncing uh, French uh, to the extent yeah. that I can possibly. <laughs> um, yeah, I listened I them on the, on, on the show notes in their French because that's how the Arrow box puts them. But uh, yeah, I'll just go by the English translations most of the time. But go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I have a hard enough time pronouncing my native language. So um, yeah. Uh, so this is a really interesting. So I need to back up. Have we, we obviously touched on the May 1968 student protests and riots and basically the shutdown and near revolution in Paris. Mm-hmm. I know we touched on that last episode. Um, and obviously we, you and I talked about during medium cool, we talked about some yeah. of the stuff going on in the United States at the democratic national convention. Uh, amongst other things that were happening there. Have you spoken a lot about the French student revolution on previous episodes, perhaps with other new wave films, or is this virgin territory for, um, for the podcast? Oh, well, no, I mean, I think, I think it's come up. I mean, the May of the May of 68, 1968 as kind of a, a year of tumult all over the world. I mean, you had Czechoslovakia, you had the Chicago riots, you had uh, the assassinations of Dr. King and, and Robert Kennedy. So we've certainly made a lot of reference to all of that upheaval. Um, but I don't know that I've gone into sort of, you know, in-depth detail about the specific issues of the student riots of May 68. It disrupted the Cannes Film Festival. It introduced tensions between Godard, who was with the radicals, and Truffaut, who was a little bit more status quo and didn't really want to fully invest going down that path. I don't know. Are there some other angles you want to you know, throw in there? Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm open to hearing your thoughts on that series of events because they're certainly pivotal to what's happening in a film like the others 
Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing to point out is just how central film culture was, uh, I guess, really across the like industrialized world or across the world at this time that film culture was sort of hand in hand with the political culture. And so however you look at that, you look at it in France with the protests that happened over the Cinématique, um, uh, Langlois was fired mm-hmm. and that, you know, for people that follow the French New Wave, like Cinématique was, I guess, you know, the the film equivalent or the New Wave equivalent of like Mecca or Jerusalem or the Vatican. So uh, an international film uproar and protest against the country of France because they fired one guy that ran one movie uh, house, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, and but yeah. but but it also really activated Godard even before May of 1968. And we already know from our discussions about Weekend, he was already becoming activated in many different ways. Mm-hmm. La Chinoise and Weekend are, you know, are pretty political stuff uh, uh, for his oeuvre up until that point. But he really gets engaged uh, on a personal level, and he'd already been involved with protests over censorship of his film and and one of Rivette's films. But like they take to the streets and he's basically advocating, you know, uh, uh, not armed insurrection, but like civil disobedience and destru- destruction of property over mm-hmm. the firing of the head of uh, of this major film institution in Paris. And so there is, you know, Brody makes the contention that there's a fairly direct connection. First of all, you know, this is a part of a series of cultural missteps by the de Gaulle government that seemed to call into question, like how, you know, both how authoritarian the government was, but also like how competent they were, that they were picking all these fights that they were losing uh, Mm -hmm. with, with filmmakers. Um, But then also like Godard and Truffaut and all of these people basically started saying, hey, if you don't rehire this guy, we're going to shut down Cannes Film Festival, which you get the sense for the French government is like one of their, you know, one of their like highlights of their year. You know, all these people from all over the world come and descend upon France. And it's like, the, you know, it's the cultural center of the world for a week or two at least. Yeah, and this was a time when film was really not, maybe not like a high art form, but it was very influential. It was it was a cocktail party conversation, you know, the new Antonioni or the new Bergman. I mean, you know, there was a certain intelligentsia, uh, uh, upper middle class, or even just you know, uh, people from all different walks of life who took pretty seriously. I mean, the kind of seriousness that you and I and the others in our little podcasting world kind of get into movies and, and really wrestle with the ideas. I mean, to, to lose Khan was a big deal because it's kind of like the fruition of all of this expressive cultural work uh, would just be thwarted and, and set aside for a full year. And, and maybe it would go on at other festivals, but France would certainly miss out on one of their marquee events. And for what they would not, uh, the, the authorities would not consider any kind of good reason. So yeah, there was a lot of tension. Yeah, there was a lot of tension, and uh, Godard was also traveling a- around America at this time, and so he was seeing mm-hmm. a lot of tension there as well. And he really felt like he was, and he was getting a lot of love and a lot of support for his um, political left turn while he was in the United States. And so, th- and there was radicalization of the student, like you said. It was this um, 
virtuous cycle where Godard was radicalizing the students with films like La Chinoise and the students were in turn radicalizing Godard. And so he comes back and he's present in Paris during just massive protests started at uh, sort of a satellite university. I'm Nantier, which I think we already discussed mm-hmm, because yeah. I think Anne Wiazemski attended yeah. university there. Right, and, right. you know, um, uh, and then there's a, an almost a total shutdown of the country when the Parisian students get involved. And then before you know it, the labor unions are also striking. Mm-hmm. Um, as you pointed out, it sort of all falls apart in the end. I think one of the interesting things that I really want to mention is you know, uh, leftist politics in France at this time, just like leftist politics or right or any type of politics mm-hmm. was not like a simple monolith very much. So, and different books I've read have pointed this out. There were, there were like, there were the mass of students, which were mostly just lefty anarchist types and they were really the bulk of the beginning of the movement. But then there were like the more serious intellectual Maoist Marxist Leninist types. They're like, wait a second, there's a movement here going on. We need to get involved. But then there was this broader union movement um, that they again got involved in. And, and they were not always at the, they did not always have their interests aligned. And particularly as things fell apart, that became more relevant. And that will play into one of our later films because one of the, more anarchist uh, leaders of these organizations, Daniel Cohn Bendit, will show actually show up <laughs> in one mm-hmm. of in one of uh, one of um, one of the films we're going to be discussing. So there's all of this stuff going on, and Godard was there. Godard was like had the cameras in his hand and was filming as students were potentially going to overturn, uh, you know, the authoritarian government of De Gaulle, or or at least that's how he saw it, and. Uh, mm-hmm yeah results in a film like the others and unfortunate like this is not the movie i would have expected on some level there's a part of me that thinks like <laughs> yeah. wow you and all these people are there for such an exciting moment and your life has changed like whatever film you bring out of this is like jean-luc godard a guy who has access to creative and intellectual capacities that I, you know, myself and many others like are just never going to be able to get like, I can't wait to see that movie. And this movie just was not the movie I would have liked from it. it, it his right. decision to film basically uh, uh, decapitated, like not decapitated, but he, he films <laughs> a conversation in a field between students and workers and refuses to show us their heads. And yeah. then for 90 minutes, intercuts at at times uh actual footage from the protests uh, of may of 68 but most of the time it's just it's just a lot of what we're going to be getting which is some of these more theoretical uh, uh voiceovers and narration and ultimately for me this is like a missed opportunity is is putting it lightly i really yeah. did not like this film and i was just disappointed Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, yeah. I think a, a lost or wasted opportunity is a pretty good little thumbnail <laughs> summary because you're right, and this this isn't like you know really critical, fascinating, historically significant conversation that just happened to be captured with a low quality you know uh, media. I mean, 
from this point on, we're talking about 16 millimeters, you know, shoestring budgets, et cetera. Although one film has a more significant budget, we'll get into that. But, but this wasn't sort of a, an accidental, well, this is the best footage we could get, but it's so, so vibrant, so important. We're just going to give it to you for its own sake. No, there was, there was a, a really, a, a clear intentionality of how the shots were framed. There are significant shots where there's actually like brush, like bushes and plant life obscuring the situated between the camera and the people like the camera could have gone anywhere we could have gotten to know who these these people are uh but but clearly there was an intention to anonymize it you know to to not focus on the personalities but to focus on the dialogue so you're right this is a this is a kind of a post-riot uh debriefing session where the protests have kind of reached fever pitch cars burning huge city squares and blocks completely filled with a sea of people, you know, windows smashed, furniture thrown out from the upper floors. I mean, it's, it's on, it's, it's kind of crazy anarchic chaos, uh, right there in the historic center of Paris, France. Um, and yet, you know, it, it sort of gets settled. Um, and, and now there's the what's next phase of this discussion and for the Marxists and for the revolutionary organizers and agitators, uh, whether they believed it or not, who can say? But their rhetoric was, oh, that was just the warm-up. That's just the beginning. You know, the, boy, wait till you see the next time. And <laughs> we hear echoes of that with the people behind the January 6th situation that happened at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., um, where there's a lot of angst being stirred up by, boy, what if they get it? you know, more thoroughly planned out next time. And I, and I, that's another sort of application of these films, if you will, to me and my personal situation. It's like, you know, we should keep an eye on what's happening uh, in terms of social unrest and political uh, protests and things of that sort, because there are a lot of people apparently uh, if the media reports are to be believed that really believe that the uh, you know, the solution to America's political problems is some kind of, you know, violent uh, you know, insurrection, secession, forcible occupation, uh, seizure of power. Um, obviously those types of strong views are held by those on the political right as well as the political left. But we do see some, you know, kind of unsettling um, linkages between these kind of fringe extremist movements and people who are currently in office and, uh, you know, seem to be fixtures in our government for the foreseeable future. Um, so that that does kind of throw some different elements. But again, I don't want to get too deep into contemporary issues other than to say there are there are things in these films that do kind of stir up at least my reflective thinking on some of these types of things just as godard was responding to the politics and the crises of his day um, in using film this way he's kind of offering at least one idea or or food for thought about how would anyone use their skill set to respond to you know a, a, a social political governmental crisis and so you know, this could have been a really brilliant, you know, analysis. Uh, and, it, and it does have a sort of documentary fly on the wall aspect to it. I mean, it is interesting to just sort of listen to 
you know, we've, we've got some students, we've got some workers, some younger adults, some, you know, adults who maybe, you know, they're late twenties, early thirties, whatever, but people who are really obviously more from the working class and they're not, they're not so much looking to, you know, validate the, the theories of, of Lenin and Marx and Engels and, and all of that. They don't really need to see the whole country go through a tumultuous revolution. They just want to have better working conditions. You know, they just want to get paid better and, and, live their lives a little bit more comfortably uh, because they feel the bosses and the corporations can afford it. So can we just get a little piece, a little bit, a little bit bigger piece of the pie? That's, that's what they're looking for. And they're willing to protest and make some demands. But if those demands are met, then the protests go down and, you know, so we go on strike, we get a better deal and we're back to work, you know, uh, pretty soon thereafter. You know the the agitators, the the purists, they they really don't want to just have a settled deal. They want things to get so bad that 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 will just make bloody revolution the the only um, acceptable alternative. Because uh, that's that's kind of what they're about. They they want to stir shit up and 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 uh, burn it down and and get a chance to start all over again. I mean, there's not going to be a dictatorship of the proletariat without some pretty painful and violent overthrow uh, of the bourgeoisie resistance, you know, the current majority in power. So again, going back to some of that theoretical stuff here, and uh, a film like any other could have brought us even further into it, but it, it does serve as a pretty powerful document of those particular events it's just, you're right, you can imagine how much better or how much more impactful it could have been if the decisions of how to present this material were not so abstruse and, and, and really almost kind of insulting in some ways. Because it's it's a long movie, too. I think it's like an hour and 45 minutes, so it takes a while to get through it all. And uh, you could have probably gotten the same effect with a 35 to 40 minute, you know, distilled version. Yeah, and I, so I think, and I know we want to go through this on a, at a fairly quickly pay, at yeah. a fairly quick pace. I think you put it very politely to say like, um, because people might not have seen this. Part of it is just because I don't know that all of these films really deserve yeah. the right. full, the full, you know, the full David Blakesley treatment. Um, <laughs> but I think this one point that you're making is actually really important. So, how does the lefty politics in France of 1968, like, how is that relevant to today? Um, or, or, or even like, what are the different nuances that existed then that sort of make us think about? Okay, so you know, am I, am I center left, you know, for people on the left, like, am I center left or am I far left or like, where, where do I reside in all of this? And what are my, what are my thoughts on it? So Truffaut and Pasolini, they sort of had a response to everything that happened that was like, look, I'm for the workers. Like yeah. if anything between the police and you know the uh, the rich protest the rich kid protesters in Paris, like a lot of the Maoists that were in, I think it's called the Superior Ecole, like they were the people that were eventually going to become legislators, and uh, you know uh, the the next president at any given time might be attending school at this one small college in Paris mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and at the Sorbonne. Like these are the elites. These are the Harvards and the Yales and the Stanfords of Paris at this time. And so Pasolini and Truffaut, 
you could either look at Truffaut cynically and say like he just wanted to get his film showed and you know, and, and he didn't really care as much about the politics as Godard. Or you could say, and this is what Truffaut said, is like, look, I agree with Pasolini. I prefer the police over the rich kids. Like, the, if yeah, we're got to make a about, choice, right, right? If we're talking about class, I am for the working man who works at Renault, who just wants to go home, have enough food for his family and not be disturbed, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm for the, basically what there's, what, what Truffaut and what Truffaut and Pasolini are saying, um, which this isn't going to match their, like their rhetoric, but they're basically saying I'm for the middle class and a lot of what's going on in the, you know, that they saw was going on in the May of 68 movement wasn't about the middle class. It was about the elites. And that was sort of their perspective. I don't know if that informs my current politics at all. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. But it is a very interesting perspective from that way of like, if Marxism and Leninism really is about the proletariat, then why is it that it's often always like the intellectual and the wealth, the children of the wealthy that's leading the revolution? And that is something that Godard explicitly wrestles with. Um, and is probably something that haunts him as somebody who, you know, probably would be more considered in the elite rather than the working class. Well, well exactly. I mean, he he really is a privileged individual. I mean, even though his financial issues, he he was not necessarily wealthy. And he's, you know, to his credit, perhaps you could say he's never sort of sold out in that way. In fact, he, he could have actually, you know, kind of milk that formula of, of, you know, quirky, attractive young actors and, you know, uh, in, in novel situations and kind of kept that little new wave pop thing going for a pretty long, steady and lucrative career. But there's, there's all of this internal stuff going on with him where he, you know, he doesn't just really want to just be that guy. Um, but, but like any other kind of ideologically driven movement there's then this kind of almost competition to see who could be the most sold out the most on fire the most you know go for it all you know and i think that's that is where you know revolutionary maoism and leftism and and rightism for that matter you know i've i've had times in my life where i've dabbled in you know those types of movements and gotten involved in social protests speaking organizing uh, writing you know, letters, meeting with congressmen, uh, creating material for public media consumption. I, I've, I've been, and I've been on both sides of the issues, uh, both right and left over the years. And I, I know that there's a dynamic, like once you get in to sort, sort of show who's the most dedicated and, and who is like the, the, the farthest from being wishy-washy or squishy or moderate or compromising, all of that. And so I, I feel like there's there's some of those types of dynamics that are going on here. I also feel like with this being Godard's first real fully post-weekend, post-68 or you know, post-break type of movie, he does kind of want to disappear. I, I wrote in my notes that this is uh, the the closest to dropping totally into the background that I've ever seen from a Godard film. I mean, even his early stuff, it's very clearly a Godard film, and and I think that will continue. Uh, but with a film like any other, uh, he really is just kind of flipping on the camera, and and even though there's he's making decisions that maybe have some of his fingerprints, he's not injecting himself. He's not speaking as much on the soundtrack or doing. 
other Godardian things. Um, and I think that was part of his decision to just really want to, you know, dedicate himself to the cause and not be so up front and center. Although, you know, in a certain way, he can hardly help himself, but to be that, <laughs> that kind of a presence in, in the movies that he makes. So how about we move on to British sounds? I love that because I happen <laughs> to love British sounds. British yeah. sounds, by the way, was my first yeah. of these films that I watched. And I okay. was like, hey, whoa, this, this is this so is much cool. better than I've been reading about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and really, to me, this feels almost like a magazine, you know, uh, where you've got one article and then that ends and now you move on to the next story and that ends or the next segment, the next scene. That's kind of, it's kind of like a program, you know. Uh, you've got the, the the tracking shot on the auto production line, kind of a throwback to weekend. You've got sort of the nude descending a staircase scene. You've got this really awful racist, you know, talking head figure, which is fascinating. And I, I definitely would like to get your reactions to each of these. Uh, then you've got this discussion within a auto factory, labor and management, uh, maybe representatives and some kind of negotiation going on. You got the the students kind of encountering the Beatles' White Album and and writing some Beatlesque songs, probably to perform at a rally, maybe later that same day or the next day. Just fascinating little snapshots of what was going on, and then the the final scene uh, with the bloody hand crawling across the soil, raising the red flag, the fist punch through the Union Jack. Boom! There's your movie. So I've kind of spoiled it, if you will, or at least touched on the the main seg- segments. But tell me what you love so much about British Sounds. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, as I mentioned, I felt like I didn't see some of the warts and wrinkles on this film from like financial constraints that I feel like I see on some of the other films, mm-hmm. or that slapdash you know, hazard uh, composition style that you were discussing. Like it doesn't, it doesn't show through as much on this as I believe as it does on some of the others. So just the quality of the filmmaking here feels better. It's hypnotic. It's still avant-garde, you know? I mean, I know for a fact that he was, Godard was wrestling with like some of Warhol's films that were coming out and were like, uh, you know, really successful during this period and sort of thinking about, okay, so how is he going to respond to some of those, like that movement in the avant-garde? And so he's think, you know, he's definitely pushing the envelope of like, it's not even popular filmmaking at this point, but as a popular filmmaker who is now doing something more independent, more avant-garde, like what is that going to be? This feels to me like the most successful manifestation of that. Um, And, uh, you know, it starts right off the bat that it's, this isn't a famous scene. It cribs off of a famous scene. And there will be another scene later when you eventually get to talk about Tout Va Bien. Um, But, you know, this idea of the central place of the automobile uh, in capitalism and all that that means in terms of production and consumption. And I don't even think they really had like a full sense of the environmental impact yet, but like the impact on people's lives for good and for bad. And obviously for a lot of Godard's perspective, the bad front and center, 10 minute tracking shot in, you know, in a, uh, a, 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 an automobile manufacturing uh, facility and, 
complete with all of the screeches and uh, noises that would come along with producing a car. My wife walked through as I was watching this film (laughs) and she said, it sounds like nails on a chalkboard. And I said, honey, that's what, and I didn't say honey because she would murder me if I ever said that. Sorry. That was, (laughs) if you can edit that out, that would be great. But like I said, I said, Kelly, um, that is exactly what the critics <laughs> and the film audiences <laughs> yeah. that saw this movie originally thought as well. But I loved it. I loved it. Uh, mm-hmm. The nude female, the visual and the way that it's filmed is striking and beautiful. Um, sometimes I question like Godard's commitment to feminism. So him oh, having yeah. that text being read, I'm like, I don't know if I feel comfortable with this. Um, but overall, y- yeah, another hypnotic sort of avant-garde experiment like i i enjoy that i love that i love that scene as well the workers meeting i think at times went a little bit over long <laughs> yeah, and, yeah you know godard not really caring too much about whether or not john lobinger thinks that that scene is going too long is like front and center um but yeah i you know and even at the end as he's you know his sense of humor perks back up and we get to see students you know, what is the song lyric that they're writing? You say U.S. and I say Mao. Like, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, a, a take on Hello, Goodbye. They also making, get into the revolution. Right. Uh-huh. I think there's a part of yeah. him that's making fun of the Beatles being yet, you know, another product of the West and a form of consumption. Probably also, you know, a, a clap back at them for not, you know, not allowing them to film him. Um, yeah. And so when he did the movie with the Rolling Stones, he probably would have picked the Rolling Stones anyways. But, uh, you know, there certainly is a little bit of that. But also, I felt like he was making fun of the students a little bit, too. So oh, it's like it's so dilettantish, you know, very much so. Right. Yeah. And it's like, Godard, man, is there anybody <laughs> good enough for this guy? Is there anybody <laughs> that can escape his scorn? Yeah, I think yeah. probably Bobby Seale. You know, Bobby X uh, will we'll mm-hmm. visit at a later date. I think it's like the only person in this entire part of his filmography that isn't totally seen as like, you know, as a fraud. But other than that, like, no, there's nobody real or fictional that escapes Godard's scorn at this point, I guess, including himself. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of this movie. If if you had to only watch one uh, of these five films, I'm not including Tout va bien. Um, but if you could only watch one of these five films, I would absolutely say watch British Sounds. Um, you know, it won't give you a sense of vertigo when you're done. Right. I, I, I think I think I'll come down between this one and Vladimir Rosa as my as my two favorites. Uh, and so recommending one versus the other, I'd say those are the two that are for sure very much worth hunting down and and checking out. Yeah, but maybe we'll we'll save our comments for Vladimir and Rosa. Uh, for a little bit later on but yeah yeah this one's pretty digestible i think it clocks in just under an hour uh as i've already kind of outlined each scene kind of has its own distinct thing so you can you could even watch it as a collection of short films really because they they kind of flow in that in that order um yeah i i think i think there is definitely a lot of interesting stuff here and and again you know there's there are some interest what got me into the communist manifesto was that it's specifically quoted over that opening production line there's a, also some pretty witty little paraphrases because the communist manifesto was written in like the 1840s as a very particular historic document uh, i kind of grew out of a convention or a conference of of 
communist thinkers and, and they talk about specific parties and issues of the day. So some of those comments are kind of updated, excuse me, updated in Godard's kind of um, treatment of the text. Uh, but that definitely is another indicator that, yeah, these these ideas were very much on, on the mind. Um, what about that that young man, that young gap tooth guy who was just making such a a uh, hideous series of statements. I mean, to me, and again, I'll, I'll betray my age a little bit. I, I do remember uh, as a child in the 60s and early 70s how much open and casual racism was just routinely expressed. I'm not just talking about sort of, you know, caricatures like Archie Bunker and All in the Family and his use of racial slurs and things like that for, for a comedy of a certain politically oriented satirical kind of comedy, but just assumptions that so many people, both in official and unofficial capacities, would, would voice about immigrants, about gay people, about racial and ethnic minorities, or even the role of women in society. Um, you know, this guy, this this kid who's um, giving this little um, red meat boilerplate speech, just, you know, all of these really nasty talking points, uh, to me, doesn't seem too far off from what you sort of see on the Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, Tucker Carlson lineage there. They've just nuanced it, maybe cleaned it up. There are certain words that they won't say that this guy does or certain ways of putting it. But I don't know, Just it's just really struck me that there has just been this steady stream of this type of thinking and rhetoric that's been a pretty institutionalized part of Western culture for a long time. And just, just to sort of see it, I don't, I don't think this was a, from an actual TV broadcast, but it's made to look like maybe an opinion piece from an, an evening news report or maybe a specialized uh, opinion show or something like that. Uh, I don't, do you have a particular response to that scene and, and, and why do you think it was included here? Yeah, no, I think, um, I mean, yeah, it definitely gives you the sense of uh, Colbert rapport, like kicked <laughs> yeah, up yeah, a that's, notch, turned up yeah. to eleven. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Using uh, the rhetoric to parody and, and and in some ways critique the the actual people who believe this stuff. Right? Yeah, look, I mean, part of part of the discourse that you and I have been having over the last couple of episodes is like a discourse inside the left, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's. And you and I have had a, or you and I did the medium cool episode where yep. I was anything but cool, man. I was like, <laughs> I was watching MSNBC eight hours a day. Like, yeah, I was, I was overheating with, um, just the incipient fascism, mm-hmm. you know, that was like the, the overt fascism that was happening in the United States and just how, uh, you know, what a, I don't want to say the word I want to say, but it messed with my mind. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, but we're not having that conversation, right? Like we're having a conversation about like which flavor of the left is, you know, yeah. is my particular flavor and what are the benefits and the burdens and right. cetera, how, how constrained are we to stay within Marxist, Leninist orthodoxy versus maybe a post-Marxist analysis where you and take the, some of the, the, the class the re- analysis, right? But go ahead. Yes. The reason is, is because to some extent to really engage with a conversation with Tucker Carlson, who basically celebrates Viktor Orban in Hungary, like to <laughs> yeah, engage yeah. in that sort of thing is like, I might as well just put away 150 bucks to make sure I have money to go and visit my therapist again. Like it's just, <laughs> it's, it's stressful. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. And on some level I can't re- like, I don't want to engage with it at the moment. 
I hope that I can live in this blissful ignorance for a little yeah. while longer. I suspect that that's not the case, but that's where I, 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 I prefer to be for the moment. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, yeah. It, it, so that is to say, yes, there is some really nasty stuff that's still out there. I'm often helped to re- be reminded just how racist, <laughs> like just how racist this country has been in oh, its yeah. culture and in its media in ways that I just accepted for a long time. And then as somebody, and Trump was like a big favor to us and that he would say things more bluntly or clumsily that basically mainstream political and media figures were saying for a long time, yeah. but they dressed it up. And then once you realize like, oh, wow, that's what they were meant. That's what they were. That's what they were selling to people. Um, you know, that was in a way almost helpful. So this is just like a continuation of, yeah, exactly. Like what you would see on your nightly news. Um, again, dressed up a little bit, uh, absolutely during the eighties and probably even yeah. during the nineties. So well, yeah, totally, yeah. totally agree. It hinted at some things I saw, but, um, overall I'm a big fan of this movie. As I said, this would be, this would be the one that I would pull out of the box and, and give to anybody other than like a Godard completionist or, somebody who really wanted to get deep into um, avant-garde or, or Marxist filmmaking. Very good. Okay, well, let's go ahead and keep it moving then. Let's go to Win from the East. <laughs> um, so Win from the East, this is definitely one of those little dodgy semi-scam things that Godard <laughs> pulled off here where he got uh, a budget, I guess it was somewhere equivalent of $200,000 plus dollars. Um, however that was in francs or lira or whatever. But the idea was to, I guess, make a leftist spaghetti Western. And uh, Jean-Marie Volante, uh, who had appeared in, I think, a couple of the Sergio Leone Man With No Name uh, trilogy films um, and had done other acting in kind of the spaghetti Western genre, was was recruited to, to star as the as the lead figure in this in this story set in the American West, uh, Anvia Zemsky uh, makes a pretty significant contribution there. Um, but you know, as a as an actual spaghetti western, what a pathetic joke of a film! I mean, you, you never once had any sense that you're in the actual 19th century. There's a few old fashioned looking costumes, I suppose, um, but. It's just such a an odd sort of collection or assemblage of fragments, uh, and and also Volante. I wanted to go back to him just a minute. I, I think of him as uh, the citizen above suspicion in Olmi's film. I believe is the director there, which I really loved. That's a story about a, a an Italian police chief who is so steeped in corruption and so convinced that he's untouchable that he kills a woman leaves his literal shoe print in her blood and other kinds of self-implicating clues, knowing that the investigation will avoid pinning it on him, even though there's all kinds of evidence that, that points in that direction because he's a citizen above suspicion. He's, he's well-connected police officer in charge. So that's the, that's Volante, what he represents to me. He was also in a movie called the Mattai affair where he played a very powerful left-wing Italian uh, kind of industrialist and, and eventually a politician. Um, 
So Volante was a man known to have pretty strong leftist activist leanings, even though he was also a pretty familiar face as a movie star. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there there is again more of this political stuff. They they asked the question kefer many times, which is translated what is to be done. And that's kind of like the working thesis of the film. What is to be done as we face this moment of crisis and uncertainty, uh, advancing the revolution, uh, you know, making progressive things happen? Um, that's that's kind of presumably why this film was made. And yet, the story that takes place or is kind of uh, role played in, in some ways, it's, it feels almost more like skits. Uh, is presented with such a lack of conviction and just such kind of a goofiness to it. I mean, some of the scenes are just poorly filmed and just kind of silly, almost. You know, I, I you know, and and we've seen this type of thing. I mean, you know, a Weekend had some of these types of, you know, group <laughs> therapy encounters presented as as acting as as scenes and skits in the film, uh, but it worked better there for some reason than, than it seems to here. Those are just a few of my thoughts on wind from the East. I, I, I found this one kind of a slog, but what are your thoughts? Yeah. So the one piece of background I want to add on to what you said was that uh, the idea of the movie came from Daniel Cohn Bendy, who in a lot of ways could be thought of as the, the student leader of at least the beginning of the May of 68 student protests. Um, and so his, it was his idea to do a leftist spaghetti Western. But the thing was, he was thinking of like the classic spaghetti Westerns. He wasn't, he was thinking of yeah. a traditional film and where you're in a set, set that looks like the old West, you know, yeah. and six guns and, you know, the man with no name and glaring eyes and showdowns and all of that type of stuff. And There's that's just that not here, the right? movie that Godard was ever going to make. Um, right. And I, so I feel really bad watching this film. I feel really bad for two, two people or two groups of people. I feel bad for all of us for not getting that <laughs> lefty spaghetti Western that he was describing because I'm thinking like, wow, could you imagine like the, the 1967 Jean-Luc Godard making a spaghetti, a leftist spaghetti Western? That would be amazing. And that's not what we get. The other person I feel really, ba really bad for is Volante. I just feel like when I realized it was him that was in the movie, I was like, oh, no. He thought he was showing up for a serious film. And he, yeah. oh, boy. Yeah, he got pranked, really basically. Got yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could picture him saying, I don't even, like, cut me out of the film. <laughs> like, And I don't know that he said that. But, yeah, it's, um, you know, he's, I love the Matai Affair. I loved your episode of the Matai Affair. It's a he's a phenomenal, you know, figure in world film and just totally hoodwinked. He got punked. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, and there's there's some times where there's this film gets so meta where they're actually showing the crew and the cast all just sitting around shooting the breeze and the sunshine. It looks like a pretty good time and people are in good spirits. And, and maybe there was some part of Volante that was like cool with just being part of this raggedy radical cinema you know experiment of godard's i mean you know he could always go back to making traditional movies and probably got well compensated for it so this is a chance for him maybe to get some street cred i, I mean i'm completely projecting myself into his head here i have no evidence for any of that but you know he may not have been completely offended by this but you're right it's it's 
I'm sure not a moment that he points to with pride as far as uh, looking back on his career (laughs) or anything like that. Yeah, but even some of that meta stuff, like Mm -hmm. the thing with Godar is I'm constantly being confronted with, he does something that I'm just totally put off by that somebody else does where I'm like, I really like that. And I always have to wonder, like, why do I dislike it? Is it because... I have some bias against Godard. I don't think that's true anymore. I think particularly after reading this booking and our conversations and seeing Tu Fabienne, I think I have a much deeper uh, respect for a complicated guy that made some really tremendous films and was a true is and was a true artist committed to the creative act in a way that like, you know, any thinking feeling person just has to admire that aspect of who he is. But I think of a movie like Symbiopsychotaxiplasm. I'm not mm-hmm. put off by the meta aspects of that film and the filmmaker videotaping, you know, vi- right, uh, right. filming the, the crew the watching crew the crew discuss- <laughs> and, and who <laughs> right. knows what's real or what isn't like, I love that movie. <laughs> so yeah, why does, yeah. why is it so alienating and, and, and uh, not interesting when it's in this film? I don't know. Um, so, but we do have to mention one thing because I think this is, We've been talking a lot about the politics and the political questions and some of the like part of the reason why I'm dismissive of Godard is because at times Godard is dismissive of the really complicated political questions he's posing. Um, and so if he were having a seriously engaged question of when is it when is political violence appropriate, like what what is that line? I would say, OK, this is you know, I'm here for that. Either dramatically, you know, somebody who's put in a position of like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a political activist, but like what pushes me to that next level or intellectually just thinking about the question of where do you exactly draw the line? Is it, you know, is it um, the end of democracy? Is it cruelty to uh, the most vulnerable in your society? Like, like, where do you draw the line between activism and actual political violence? Because they're. I think that there probably is a line and he launches into that argument, that discussion with no nuance and no subtlety in this film. He basically makes a call for um, leftist terrorism at the end of the film. And this, by the way, is the most interesting part of the movie, which is upsetting in a bunch of different ways. But like at the end of the film, he shows how to make a homemade bomb yeah. And if that isn't bad or interesting enough, I mean, that's anarchic anarchist cookbook 101. But then he actually shows clips of a market and like a grandmother shopping at the market and then a voiceover of like, hey, terrorism is just, you know, the underclass getting even with the elites. And I'm like, what is yeah. he? What is he talking about? This is the level right. of discourse about what is one of the most serious political questions? Yeah. Um, and so, but at the same time, ultimately this movie is such a failure for me that that was actually the highlight of the movie because at least I was like engaged and paying attention. Just aesthetically, obviously, yeah. I think I've made pretty clear. I'm actually, the threshold for me for political violence is very, very high. And uh, I take it a lot more seriously than I think, honestly, Godard seems to take it at times. But... Yeah, no, there was definitely there was there was kind of a a bloodthirstiness in the air, and again, you know, 
maybe in the context of you know the the French war in Algeria, the Vietnam War, all of the demonstrations showing that the people do not support this, and yet you know these atrocities continue. Maybe with that kind of frustration and and just kind of this cumulative resentment that things are not changing. You know, maybe maybe you get there, but but you're right. I mean, to me, the only condoned use of political violence is in the immediate moment where it's it's your life or the person who's attacking or oppressing you i'm just and especially when it comes into you know random bombs i mean you know they've shown both a molotov cocktail as well as time bombs or or battery powered bombs there's a demonstration of how to uh, cover your fingerprints you know put glue or whatever on your fingers uh, and then let it dry so that you don't leave fingerprints uh, as cr- incriminating evidence so i mean it's like and again is is that just uh, radical chic is that just kind of a little kind of uh, gratuitous shot that is thrown in there versus uh, a sustained instruction manual of how to how to create bombs and where to set them. I mean, he's definitely being a provocative bad boy there, and it is, you know, somewhat offensive and, and uh, appalling, honestly, to think about somebody taking that as a license or an endorsement from the great JLG to go out and, you know, blow up the market while the grannies and, and housewives and children are there, you know, getting their daily you know dose of vegetables and baguettes and whatnot. So it, it's just kind of like, you know, you really are far out on the limb here, uh, Jean-Luc. Can we reel it in a little bit here? Or are you really backing this up? Is this sincerely where you're coming from? Because again, you know, I get it, you know, ironic, extremist rhetoric. I, hey, I, I was in a punk rock band. I, you know, we talked about blowing up and killing and, you know, fucking up the system and all of that, you know, with, with youthful abandon and glee. But that was when I was like 19 and 20 years old, not when I'm 38, you know, 39. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess it is that balance between being, you know, personally responsible, recognizing that you do have a, a role as a, as an influencer in, in shaping opinions and, and perhaps even affecting people's behaviors. And, uh, that's something that I just feel like there's a moral uh, ethical issue here of like, how, how far do you let yourself go down this path of nihilism, you know? Uh, but that's, that's a revolutionary political debate and the role of, of uh, premeditated violence to advance the larger cause. I mean, I don't appreciate it when legitimately elected governments engage in warfare that is going to kill thousands of innocent people who just happen to be living in a country that we've put in the crosshairs. You know, I don't think that's justified, even though there may be geopolitical national interests in saying we've got to knock this enemy out. Um, that's an incredibly grave decision that needs to be made. And I haven't seen it made in the right way by governing you know, officials within my lifetime, you know? So anyways, I'll get off the high horse a little bit there. Anything else you want to say about uh, win from the East before we move it on over? No, no, no. Uh, I think okay. uh, we're ready for struggles in Italy, <laughs> which is a struggle of its own. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe he thought. One. I guess maybe yeah. he thought. You know what? Win from the East is too engaging. We need to really dial it back for people. <laughs> well, and I think, and I think this one here, we really have not uh, given Jean Pierre Gorin his full credit. Probably this is oh, absolutely, I think absolutely, he, and that's... he can. He can get a lot of credit for this one, <laughs> and I and I think I think this is one where, um, where he actually really did the lion's share of the work on this. Um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of the sequence. Is this the one where Godard had had his motorcycle accident? No, no, that's no, that, that's, no, that's, that's Bien. Bien. That's right. right. Which, so we'll, we'll save that for later. We, but go well, ahead. no, yeah. I think we need to stop just for one second and say sure. what's interesting is that the creative period with Gurin and Godard had so many misfires, but it's very clear. Both of these filmmakers are wildly talented. Now, Godard, I don't yeah. need to explain, like, you know, if you listen to this podcast, on some level, you probably agree with me that even if you don't like him, Godard is super talented. But Gurin, like, oh my gosh, his role in doing Tout va bien and that movie is yeah. amazing. And again, this is not the podcast for that, but I we have not talked enough about him. Um, and I think that if that's the only thing I get to say about, about, uh, uh, you know, the other major part of Ziga Vertov, it should be said, Gurin is a, also a tremendously talented filmmaker who also yeah, made well, some, some major misfires <laughs> during this period. Yeah. Yeah. Put some clunkers out there. And this one here is, you know, again, it feels like they're trying to maybe in some ways compensate from some of the excesses or some of the, um, I don't know, what's the word? It's not the goofiness of Wind from the East or or the kind of the scammy nature of the bait and switch type of thing that they did where they took a lot of funding and creative film that the producers and distributors just said, you know what, this is this is junk. We don't want nothing to do with it, you know, because again, it was, it, it did receive distribution, but it didn't get the kind of reception from the people who put up the money uh, that, convince them that they had made a wise investment i mean so and and again this is this is a, just a kind of a it is almost like a character issue it's like if somebody gives you you know lots of money i mean even you know even if it's a low budget by contemporary standards it's still a significant amount of money it feels to me like you've got an obligation to produce art produce a work that that suits what they what they were expecting from you and i don't think you can say godard uh, really did that with Wind from the East. But this one here is much more back to basics in terms of uh, a densely constructed um, treatise on on political uh, philosophy and, and um, the application of these ideas in the life of a young woman uh, who, uh, I guess in the film, she has a uh, a role uh, she she's said to be an actress and she's um using these ideas these revolutionary principles as she goes about her her life and and you see a lot of these ordinary routines you know her her grooming habits uh, shopping for new clothes having a meal with her family uh, teaching math to a, a student uh, somebody around her age but she's like a professor or, or a, an academic of some sort uh and then there, a lot of fourth wall breaking where she's talking right to the camera uh, and it's, it's like the cycle of all of these scenes kind of gets repeated with um you know with kind of an an overlay just kind of explaining some of the questions that she's wrestling with and there's a lot of the purist theory uh there's two ways of seeing the world uh, the metaphysical or idealistic or the dialectic slash marxist you know like in other words if you're going to buy into the illusions and the power structures of the status quo you're an idealist and that's not a good thing to be in, in this kind of formulation here you want to be dialectic you want to be marxist you want to have your eyes open and 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 almost resisting the efforts of the bourgeoisie to convince you that 
the normal order of things is, is acceptable and that, you know, if people just work hard and play by the rules, they can have a good life and just let the bourgeoisie stay in power, calling the shots and setting the terms by which the rest of us live our lives. Uh, she She's against all of that. She wants to be part of the solution, which is overthrow the bourgeoisie, put the proletariat in charge. And, uh, and so she does that by selling communist newspapers in the street. Um, but she's also saying, yeah, this is just a f- portion. This is a fraction of who I really am. And so she's, she's trying to find a way of authentic, uh, expression and representation. Uh, I, I think the film was trying to put her forth as a role model of how a young person who's aware of these ideas can actually apply them and, and live them out. So in that sense, it is kind of like a, a a tract, you know, a little outline of, of how a committed young Marxist um, can walk the talk. That was kind of my my gist of, of what this film is supposed to be about. Yeah, I I mean, part of the difficulty is, is just in order to be convinced, I have to be able to track everything that's happening. So does she eventually ch- change? Like, I re- I remember she's, and again, this is going to sound flippant, but it's, I, I genuinely mean this. Like, I know that she, she goes through, there's an element of this film that's like uh, a John Dealman, where, again, forgive me for mispronunciation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but it's repetition and then the subtle changes or no changes at all, but just the changes in the soundtrack are going to hint at a transformation of this person as well as, you know, the, the, um, uh, the final straw that broke the camel's back sort of thing. And so what are the things that are accumulating in her life? It's just, it's, you know, she buys, she buys sweaters, she picks out her clothes. She, uh, 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 she goes to work, she advocates and she, you know, performs her activism inside of the uh, manufacturing and she eats soup and she makes love to her boyfriend or uh, I don't know exactly what his relation to her is, but these things happen. And I know that there's this discussion of practice versus theory that goes on in these films, as well as like um, idealism versus um, versus realism, Marxism versus the existing order of things. But I don't know, is, is she changing in the film? Is there something that she's doing that's different? Or is it just a repeated math problem and the solution is, oh, I, I don't I don't know. And so if this is supposed to be effective um, on me, I guess in any way, like not just as propaganda, as film, as an intellectual mm-hmm. exercise, like however you want to look at it. Like, I don't know that it's fully successful if I've watched it twice and I still not really sure. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think it really is successful. Even if you can identify closely with this woman, say, say you're a young woman, a feminist, uh, just kind of emerging out of your sort of student young adult period, maybe establishing yourself. I mean, there's a couple quotes towards the end of the film that I put in my notes here. She says, what place my militant practice attacks the decisive areas of the ideology. So in other words, by applying her practice, by, by rigorously engaging in self critique, which is a big piece of this version of Marxism, which is you, you apply the principles, you, take an action and then you 
you engage in a rigorous self-criticism afterwards, which allows you to avoid complacency, to maintain your revolutionary zeal, and to learn from whatever mistakes might have been made, or if you didn't get the intended outcome, then you try something different the next time. So it's it's a very rigorous process where you're really, you know, uh, trying to spare yourself from sentimentality or, well, we did the best we could, we'll, we'll do better. You know, it's it's like, no, you know, tell it like it is and, and, and take feedback and, and especially opening up the idea that somebody who's maybe your superior in the movement, somebody who is kind of, you know, playing the chairman Mao kind of tells you where you messed up and, and you just take your orders and you do better and, and make sure. So there's an exhortation to persevere. And that's kind of where the film exactly winds up the work and the struggle, the work and the struggle. She repeats that line several times, the work and the struggle. And that's like the end of the film. Again, no credits, no no soundtrack music, no feel-good moment. It's like this is basically telling you that if you're going to walk this militant, radical path, it's going to be work and struggle. It's never going to be done. You're always going to have to keep pushing it uh, to, to advance the cause. And so in a sense, it's, it's almost like, I mean, this, this really did strike me uh, as a you know, when people say Marxism is a kind of a, a religious or, or whatever type of movement, there is a sense of that sort of uh, dogmatic purity where, you know, in various churches or other types of organized religion, the the disciples will be told, you're, you're never going to get it right. We're always going to sin. We're always going to need to be forgiven. We're never going to live up to the pure principles of our founding, you know, uh, religious authority figure, a spiritual leader, whatever. Uh, but you persevere. So whether that's, you know, Buddhism, you, you can never be completely, you know, off of the wheel of suffering or Islam and, and keeping the, the edicts of Muhammad or, or within Christianity. You know, people who get committed to these types of causes are told you're never going to get it right, but you got to keep hanging in there. Don't just give up. And so to me, that's, that seems to be what struggle in Italy is trying to achieve. And, and, but in that sense, it really does seem with a, maybe a few momentary exceptions, kind of lacking in humor and in, in that sense, lacking in self-awareness. I mean, it's just so dry and stern that I just feel like uh, you kind of lost me there because first of all, I'm just not completely on board with your program. Uh, but even even if I was, or even if I was kind of seriously investigating, maybe I should be a Marxist. Maybe I really should, you know, dispel myself of the bourgeois illusions um, and and wake up to reality as it is. I I just don't feel like it it created an opportunity to really engage and identify with this character and maybe empathize with the struggle that she's committed herself to. I mean, it just feels like, you know, I, I just feel like, yeah, you've been kind of sold a bill of goods here. <laughs> I don't really think this is going to generate the type of results or changes that maybe you're aspiring to. And that is maybe said in hindsight, because we know that there, other than maybe some aesthetic or, or cultural influences, this whole movement really didn't produce the kind of sweeping historic change that a lot of its young uh, adherence were promised by those who, in my opinion, might have been old enough to know better. I think 
I think I identified with her just in terms of being like a young activist and trying to do her best. And it's funny because yeah. if he's if he's knocking idealism and pushing towards realism, I mean, if anything, I celebrate her idealism here. The idea yeah. of, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, trying to help and, and create a better system and like actually um, subjugating her own. And this is mentioned in the film and but sort of as like a joke because she says, hey, look, if you if you want to get your own bathroom, get your own apartment. And he says, well, I have to subjugate my needs to the needs of the communist party, uh, which is basically saying like, no, I'm not going to get a job because you know, I'm too committed to the cause, but she's like, dude, That's I'm, right. I'm trying to brush my teeth um, or I'm trying to apply my makeup. But yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. I identify with her idealism and that part of it's very human. Obviously, if that is supposed to be like how an activist is supposed to behave, like, Oh my gosh, you're only, I don't think that advertising the mass masochistic, like self-flagellation aspects of, of, uh, whatever your movement is like a great selling point for a lot of people. It certainly isn't for me. Um, and there's so many issues with that. Like, first of all, the self-criticism, the public self-criticisms uh, in Soviet Russia, as well as I think China, like a lot of it was just like political abuse. And Godard oh, should have known better because it happened to Eisenstein and Godard mm-hmm. was going to make a film about, you know, the film that Eisenstein had to revoke because uh, during one of his self-criticism. Um, well, that so, Eisenstein was brought up in Wind from the East, and you know we didn't really get into that. But but he basically, I, I would say, implicitly denounced Eisenstein in favor of Ziga Vertov. Eisenstein made historical epics and played into bourgeois sentimentality, as I think one of the sort of takeaways from that section of Wind from the East. Um, and and so th- they were kind of tilted over to that extreme where you know even Eisenstein was kind of a sellout you know uh, at least according to this you know this version of marxist doctrine and uh, and so and i think what you might see here is that there's a difference between what you advertise to recruit new people to join your movement versus what you tell those who are already inside <laughs> you start oh, doing right, the, right, right. the breakdown thing like okay you know join us it's it's hip it's cool it's it's wonderful it's making the world a better place but now it's like okay now that you're part of the group here are your orders here are your expectations that you dirty dog you know you and and it really it does become a form of of abuse and authoritarianism and that's really been one of my you know breaking points i mean when i was involved with some of the anti-war efforts in the early 2000s you know both before and after the iraq war had uh kind of erupted and still one of the most horrible historic mistakes I've ever seen in my, in my lifetime by made by our government, by people who I definitely think knew better and, and certainly should have been held to higher standards than they were. Um, but, you know, even my involvement with that movement became disrupted because there were just such rigid dogmatic thinkers and you started getting into 9-11 trutherism and just all kinds of other stuff. And it's like, ah, you're losing me, man. I mean, I, 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 I have my beliefs, I have my commitments, but I cannot go all the way down this road. And that's, that's just felt like that's where certain people wanted to take it. And I, and I think that's exactly where Godard eventually found himself where he's recognized, 
you know, I kind of been drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, he wouldn't use that kind of language, but that's, that's kind of where you got here is that the, the, the Maoist thing was, was fresh and vitalizing and, and dynamic for a while until you sort of take the blinkers off. And I think, you know, again, this is just my view. Marxism is a form of idealism, the idea that this workers' revolution is inevitable, that all of history boils down to the struggle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. I'm sorry, that's very reductionist thinking. I mean, Marx is brilliant and a genius, and I'm sure he's got intellectual capabilities that outstrip anything I could ever come up with. But, you know, to me, that's just kind of propagandistic bullshit, that it's like everything can be some and, and whittled down to this basic dynamic, you know, conflict. And that's exactly what it says at the at, at the very beginning of the Communist Manifesto. And it's like, you know what? I disagree. I don't think that that's a sufficiently nuanced or flexible interpretive framework to account for all the stuff that we've seen happening throughout history or that we see happening in our own time. And whether that was the 60s or the 90s or the 2020s that we're in now, I mean, you should be able to see that life is more complex than these kind of rigid formulas would would have us think otherwise. So, yeah, that's where I think we do get into kind of uh, brainwashing and manipulation to a certain extent uh, in that the the dogma of this political movement, uh, again, whatever side of the spectrum you want to characterize it, becomes sort of self-justifying and, and just kind of over overwhelming and and overbearing and, and unbearable uh, when it gets down to how real people live their lives. Well, anyways, I'm, I'm on a bit of a tangent there, so let's, let's reel it back in. Uh, I don't know, anything else you want to say about um, struggle in Italy before we get into our last one, Vladimir and Rosa? Yeah, the only other thing I want to say about self-criticism that I'm kind of <laughs> I'm kind of tickled by is could you yeah. imagine like Mao or Stalin like undergoing a self-criticism? Oh, like right. no, the people who are actually leading revolutions <laughs> are really just pleased as pie, you know, that they're leading a revolution or that they're in yeah. power. Like they're not self-criticizing. It's, you know, it, it almost makes you think of like uh Nietzsche and the you know, his two different moralities and like there's one morality for the activist, but then there's like a totally mm-hmm. different morality for the leader of it. It's like, Oh, come on. Yeah. yeah. You know, g- give this girl a break. <laughs> like let her be an <laughs> activist and eat her soup. You know, she doesn't have to do one or the other. Right. Um, and, and shop for her pleasant peasant boss. Uh, uh, that, that, uh, you, her. You, yeah. It's <laughs> what you say. Struggles in Italy doesn't have it, you know, isn't all that funny, but that joke about what is it? 30,000 lira for a peasant dress, a peasant blouse. <laughs> have you seen the work? You know, it's <laughs> very fine fabric. <laughs> that is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, yeah but sure. no, you're right. So we get, it, we do need to move on because there is a very meaty, film that he you know him and Gorin produced later uh vladimir and rosa that i don't think i like as much as you and in Mm -hmm. fact is the movie that triggered my vertigo immediately before (laughs) recording this yeah but um certainly of the films that are produced in this cycle it's probably the one i need to most like go back and rewatch like six months from now or six years from now or something. But like it is, there is a lot going on here and it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's got really talented actors and actresses and some funky ideas. And I I don't know that this is an interesting movie for me that 
is a lot for me right now, but yeah. I see that there is stuff in there uh, that might be worth uh, revisiting. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I don't have as extensive notes on it as I wish I did. And I, we have been at this for a while. I'm not suggesting we're mm. just going to you know whip through this, but you know, we're going coming up on an hour and 40 minutes or so. Um, and, and there's a ton here. So probably for people <laughs> that handful of people who might be listening to this as enthusiasts for this particular film, I, I don't want to be too preemptive, but we may not go into as much depth as as the film probably deserves because as you said there's a lot happening here um there's the historical sort of precedent of the trial of the chicago eight uh which has kind of freely and loosely adapted for this film there are a few historic figures that are named and and portrayed here by the cast uh and then there's an an allusion to by the title vladimir and rosa uh Vladimir Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg, uh, a kind of Polish-German economist and philosopher uh, within Marxism who played a pretty pivotal role in the early years just following the Russian Revolution, was actually executed, uh, murdered really is more 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 like it, by uh, kind of incipient right-wing German uh, political activists in, in 1919. Uh, but she she had a kind of a humanizing effect in some of her in her work, and I'm just really getting to know more about her. Just you know, I did a little bit of reading up once I understood the reference in the title. Um, I know Lenin certainly more than I know Luxembourg, but apparently they had some kind of dialogue as well. And so, even though they're not really dealt with or treated at length, the the uh, title of the film is kind of a wink inside knowledge uh, sort of reference to to those two, even though the, the actual characters by those names are, are portrayed by Godard and Garin themselves as kind of comical characters who get caught up in this uh, caught up in this trial and also appear on camera. Uh, another kind of meta type of thing. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but then, yeah, also just kind of, uh, you know, the portrayal of um, kind of fascist uh, authoritarian cops beating the weathermen. Uh, there's this soundtrack, uh, this song that keeps playing over and over again. The weather's fine for a weather girl and a weatherman. And for you know, the weathermen were kind of a, a student um, terrorist type of organization that used, you know, bombings and political violence to advance their cause in the United States. And so, you know, the weathermen were definitely a, um, a very controversial you know, item within the uh, American political left and were certainly known worldwide as kind of the, 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 the harbingers of that type of uh, violent activism uh, and were emulated in uh, other societies to a certain extent. They were kind of the, the, the radicals who were really willing to back it up with, with bombings and, and other types of, you know, heavy handed uh, tactics to, to disrupt the social order. And of course, stirred up a lot of controversy within American leftist circles because are you with them or are you against them? You know, where, where do you draw that line? So yeah, uh, each of the characters uh, of this Chicago Eight that are on trial kind of represent uh, different archetypes of a sort. You've got a student activist, you've got a women's liberation activist, you've got um, that's played by Anna Vizemsky. You've got uh, David Dellinger, who is another real life character. He's apparently like a 
a doctor, a pacifist. So he's kind of kind of the older set of the of the left at that time who was part of, you know, the, the trial. And then you got Bobby Seal, uh, a Black Panther who was arrested and he was the only one who was not let out on bail. Uh, the film makes it clear that he was only involved in like speaking at a rally before any of the riots actually occurred. He was not present during any of the violent demonstrations, and yet he seemed to get the the harshest treatment both within the legal system and the media uh, just because he was a black man and, and the system wanted to make a negative example out of him. And then there's another character portraying the attorney, William Kunstler, who was the, the advocate, you know, who represented the Chicago Eight in the trial and was a bit of a showman himself. I mean, he knew how to, you know, turn his role as, as the legal representative into a bit of a publicity generating spotlight on himself. And so there's sort of some some comedic moments played at his expense. Again, really gets into some inside baseball with people who were following this trial, which was a pretty prominent thing. I even remember hearing about Bobby Seale and the Chicago 8 or Chicago 7, I think is another, I don't know what the formulations are, but I, I remember hearing about that as a kid, just watching the news, you know, as, as a as young man, I probably like nine or 10 years old when, when this kind of stuff was going on in my life. So, you know, I don't know that there's just a ton there. And again, I, I wish I'd had a little bit more time to do uh, more analysis. Oh, and the judge character, <laughs> he's another piece of work because he's very, uh, well, for one, he's very partial to the prosecution, granting them every uh, objection and, and basically undercutting the defense every chance he gets. And he's up there looking at Playboy centerfolds and taking his notes by writing, you know, obscure comments on various body parts that are presented on screen. But he's he's this kind of screeching, ridiculous, buffoonish character. So there's a there's a satire of the legal system and and again the the the, the lackeys uh, who sit in judges' robes at the bench you know, following the orders of the bourgeois masters who are just out to repress and exploit the working man and woman every chance they get. Um, I don't know. So yeah, I've, I've thrown a lot out there. I don't know, John, would you, where do you want to pick up any of those themes or bring in some other uh, aspects of the film that stood out to you? Uh, I want to mention two things. One is uh, this is another one of those bait and switch funding <laughs> issues <laughs> yes, where yeah. Grove Press, you know, God yeah. bless him after all this. Yep. Maybe they just didn't know what Godard was doing uh, around this time, but they gave him. I don't know if they gave him twenty five thousand uh, up front and then promised a hundred thousand, or they gave him all one hundred twenty five thousand. It was like it was like, a contract to make several films. Yeah, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. And so the first one was supposed to be about like a, a, a Marxist film about the failure of the eighteen forty eight French Revolution, which is <laughs> not what this movie is. But then the movie is called Vladimir and Rosa, which again is not what this movie is. This is not a movie about Vladimir Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg. This is a movie about the Chicago. It was then called Chicago eight. I think now we, you know, sort of register Bobby seals wish to not be connected with them. And so call them the Chicago seven, but however you want to call them, it was about that trial. And so this is, yeah, there's a lot of bait and switching going on. Um, I have to say, I think at the point of watching this film, 
And there is more interesting stuff going on here than, say, like struggles in Italy or win from the East for me. But I I think that I just hit a certain limit with abstract <laughs> theorizing. And this is a film that had as its basis very non-abstract things. But yet there are long discussions of like abstract I don't even want to say theoretical conversations. There's just conversations about words. And I'm just like, what are they? Are they referring to something specific? Like what is happening? Or are they just talking yeah. to debate and, and fill the air with, with sounds. And so, and, and just ridicule people that they don't yeah. like, like the judge and the jury, these kind of bourgeois. Housewives oh gosh. And oh gosh. And the Sig, the Sig Heil, the, yeah. the, the Sig yeah. Heil sketch where, you know, he compares a bunch of countries to Nazi Germany, all fine and good. You know, that's sort of like that's sort of like what Godard does. So, you know, you you you're getting what you paid for. But then he, I think he says, uh, he says Israel Sigheil, and it's like, yeah. whoa, what what the hell is? Yeah, right. You know, and again, he has a lot of very interesting political ideas. He had visited Palestine, like it's you know, he is not this reductive or this. Um, just like uh, childlike or childish, infantile, but his politics in some of his films, and for me, it's true here, just comes across as like sophomoreish or not serious, and he's just like gonna have outrageous jokes that just don't land yeah. for me. Yeah. And but 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 a lot of people view that and other stuff that Brody talks about in his book in a much more serious light, and for like somebody who was a serious thinker and had seen like a lot of horrors of capitalism of world war two of Nazi Germany. Like he had a sense of what was going on in a real moral compass, like to sort of loosely make a connection like that is just irresponsible. Um, so yeah, so like, you know, but that's his, his political irresponsibility. Um, his flirting with anti-Semitism is all awful, but like, I, it, it just it's packaged in a way that it it's it's boring on top of being offensive for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I maybe um, maybe because it, it it doesn't contain a lot of variety. There's a lot of stuff that you can engage with and and take in different ways. I didn't maybe find it as offensive. I mean, I definitely get it. I, I do understand that. Um, you know, throwing those Sieg Heils out there is just, it's incredibly poor taste and, and, and crude and gross and, and very understandably offensive. Like there's just some areas you just don't joke around at least, you know, with contemporary sensibilities and, and this was a different time and place and a different, a different method. I mean, you know, Godard was very clearly sympathetic to the Palestinian cause and saw Israel as the lackeys of the United States imperialists. And while there, there may be some truth to that, the, the, the danger of, of lapsing into genuine antisemitism is, is so pronounced and, when you identify with the Palestinian cause, I mean, there is a lot of very hostile, overt anti-Semitism that is wrapped up in that. It's like, it's very hard to separate the idea. Let's just, let's just give the Palestinian people some, some freedom to determine their future and live in peace and security and stability. Like every human being, every family, every community deserves that, you know? And yet, 
there are some real problems if you let, you know, some of that rhetoric get realized with weaponry and political power and a safe base of operation to carry out murderous schemes. So it's an extraordinarily painful and complicated series of problems that are kind of boiled down to, again, really simplistic and and what turns out to be pretty dangerous rhetoric uh, that doesn't seem to be taking full account of the of the of the real moral and ethical problems that are you know in in wrapped into all of these controversies and really cannot be just sort of set aside and avoided uh, as much as we wish it were so <laughs> you know so one of you know i'll yeah. just wrap up with this one of Godard's yeah. like through themes at this time is his ability to alienate friends. Like he's clearly a deeply charismatic (laughs) person Mm -hmm. and, you know, convinced people to give him lots of money and started a worldwide movement in aesthetics and was like, you know, I mean, you can't discount this guy's talent on a professional and artistic level, nor I think on a personal level. Um, but he, it, like within the seed of his charisma was also just this, I'm going to turn on you eventually. He does it to Gorin, in fact. Like he he yeah. does it to basically everybody in his life other than, I guess, Mielville, um, the woman that he's, uh, I think, still is his life partner. Um, well, and I think he had to just go through this gauntlet of personal crises to where he could finally just mellow out a little yeah. bit and become a, a stable human being who can sustain a long-term relationship and, and work in good faith. I mean, that's the thing. He really is kind of a trickster charlatan uh, throughout this period of his filmmaking. And, you know, trickster charlatans can create fascinating, uh, you know, unique works (laughs) that are unlike anything you've ever seen. And I think there is absolutely something compelling and, and, and fascinating about, these films and and there was another one pravda which apparently at one point was supposed to be part of this set and then the permission was rescinded and i do wonder if it was godard himself who decided he did not want to commemorate that one because he's he's actively distanced himself from that film and i think on one of the um supplements on this box set he talked uh, the, the 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 scholar uh, talked about how godard would actively not denounce or repudiate but he would say yeah i'm not doing that anymore i've I've kind of passed that uh, as a way of both you know softening perhaps some of the criticism because he's already kind of done a preemptive distancing himself so don't hold it against me whatever mistakes because i'm not into that anymore you know Uh, but i think also it's just a way of for him working through this process where where his life and his art and his relationships were all of a single piece you know i mean his his relationship with anvia zemsky was pretty much shot by the time uh of this film vladimir and rosa uh he had sort of moved on to another obsession his relationship with jean-pierre Gorin, and and even though anvia zemsky appears in these films and is part of the of the community that created them uh, you know, the the writing was already on the wall. She and uh, Godard were not going to have a long-term relationship as a couple. And I think you can just take the, the sheer age difference as well. You talked in the last episode, John, about Godard's emotional availability. He was just still way too you know, kind of up his own ass and, and des- you know, obsessed with his own art, his creative process. You know, Envia Zemsky certainly comes across as a very attractive, beautiful young woman. And, 
as I kind of mentioned, you know, she was kind of fresh clay that he could mold and shape in ways that perhaps Anna Karina was resistant to. But I think he really needed to get with somebody more his own age and maybe just get some of those wild oats out of his system. And that's where uh, Anne-Marie Mayville uh, became his his third wife and the one that's lasted and, and stuck with him. And she's also been his most kind of intimate and steady collaborator. You know, she's she's not just his wife. She's a very integral part of all the films that he's made really from the mid-70s on forward. So, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get around to discussing those other than Every Man for Himself. I guess that's a Criterion title. <laughs> and maybe there's more down the way. But yeah, Godard kind of just went off in some different directions here. Uh, this box set kind of captures this, you know, really inimitable and and just really fascinating um chapter of his career and i say fascinating perhaps in air quotes because some people are just going to be completely turned off and bored by these films and even you know british sounds which i think we both agree is maybe the most accessible and digestible uh, is just it's just not going to cut it <laughs> for a lot of folks even those who really love you know the early nouvelle vague stuff that godard put together so yeah, it does kind of feel like we're kind of approaching the landing strip here, John. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Do you want to do any more takes on Vladimir and Rosa, or do we want to get into summarizing the the box, the the the, the years? We've we've kind of done some of that already, but yeah, where do you yeah want to I guess with? the main point I want to make is that I view myself as one of those friends of Godard that he's like actively trying to alienate at this point in his filmography, you know, <laughs> yeah, like man. whether it's, don't whether get it's too Mel- close to me, you know, okay, keep your distance. Almost, whether it's yeah. Melville or Truffaut, it's like he with Vladimir and Rosa struggles in Italy, like with some of these films, it feels like he's trying to push me away. And so when I, when I criticize some of these films or I criticize, you know, some of the, uh, uh, his his dancing really close to anti-Semitism in some of these films. Like, I'm not saying this is somebody who hates Godard or thinks like right. he hasn't done anything redeeming or nothing like that. Nothing like that. I love some of his films. And in fact, when you get to Tout va bien, you're like, he seduced me back into the fold at, yeah. with that film. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, you're riding the roller coaster when you make friends with Jean-Luc Godard. And it's the same thing with his filmography. And so I just wanted to, I just wanted to button that up that, you know, what he was doing in his filmography, he was also kind of doing in his life. And, you know, he's that's certainly been the way that I've experienced this this box set. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, that's good. I mean, and I actually, John, if, I, I know that you kind of declined um, the, the option of being part of the Tuva Bien episode just because I, I say that I think I've got like five other people who've expressed interest. Um, if you want to give kind of your brief take on that film, uh, having just watched it recently and obviously had a pretty positive experience with it, I'm very happy to give you a few minutes just to kind of throw your sort of nutshell summary of the film out there as a sort of a transitional piece for the next episode. Uh, however you want to handle that, uh, Tell me just a little bit about Tuva Bien and, and your response to it. Sure. So I, I guess the first thing to say is like sort of the overview of this box. I think the story around this box for a long time was just nobody could see any of these films. Uh, I yeah. think before this was released and, you know, it, I mean, before this was released, like you couldn't see most of these films, even if you were in the countries where he was making and trying to release these films at the time that he was making them. Like they just, ne- they none of these films that we're discussing really got widely distributed, I think until sort of the box set. And, 
and I think a lot of the people that saw him either saw him on like copied VHS tapes or, oh, yeah. you know, they had access to um, like that film one sixteen millimeter print yeah. that's been bouncing around for years. Right. <laughs> and so uh, so that's been the story for a long time. But and so part of the story was just the rumor about it, though, was like, oh, these are universally failed films. I think sort yeah. of the exception. And I think I think to some extent, like that's still the story. For a lot of people, I think Kent Jones is a little bit mixed. I think in his um, one of his um, supplements in the Criterion Channel, or not in the Criterion Channel, but in one of the Criterion discs, he basically mentions like, "Hey, look, these films are more interesting than they are rumored to be." Um, I don't know if I would go as far as that uh, on a personal level. I think personally, like I said, British Sounds is definitely worth visiting. I think this point in his career is worth doing a lot of thinking about because it results in one of what I think are one of his masterworks, probably one of his four masterworks for me, at least to mm-hmm. Fabienne, this film genuinely felt like he was speaking directly to me. It was far more nuanced than I think any of these films have been. It actually gives voice to a capitalist. And even though it's very clear who my sympathies are supposed to lie with, it actually like the capitalist is given a fairly articulate, like, well-voiced argument and it's given voices to all different factions and fractions of the socialist movement within the film and and you know upper middle class people who are trying to wrestle with their role in society um i ideologically i find and intellectually like i find it a lot more interesting than some of his more you know dogmatic stuff um also just visually like it gets really interesting and exciting again the presentation that I saw on the Criterion channel was not like a great transfer, but nonetheless, I could still tell like, oh, wow, this is visually exciting with the cutaway house uh, or not. It's not a house. It's a factory, but like the cutaway rooms um, as well as uh, the ending sequence in the uh, supermarket um, are just like some of the great works in the Godard filmography. Now, obviously, the final word on this, though, is like how much of it is actually Godard's. I'm going to allow you <laughs> yeah. and your team to sort of pick apart, <laughs> you know, all of that. But to, to Vabien, regardless of who you want to give credit to, Garin or Godard or both of them, is like a masterwork. And so, um, yeah, it's, it was such a great way to like button up a roller coaster ride <laughs> of, uh, through yeah, this filmography yeah. was like a real high note was watching that film. Well, and I'm really glad. Uh, it's I've I've seen Tuvabian a few times over the years, but I haven't rewatched it yet in pr- preparation for the next episode. I'll I'll watch it and probably watch it a couple times and get it good and fresh in memory before I start offering any of my own takes on it. But I really do feel like having taken this journey to from the end of Godard's Nouvelle Vague period through this kind of wandering in the wilderness of the Ziga Vertov group and the films that kind of predated the formal establishment of that little collective. Uh, I, I feel like I'm in a much better place to really give to Fabienne, uh, you know, a good watch, some, some analytical uh, processing of my own and, you know, whether my guests for the next episode have watched any of these films or not, that's fine with me. Certainly no, no obligations, but I just feel myself, much better informed and 
I, I have definitely been challenged. I, again, I've, I've had a lot to say about the political content and the philosophical aspects, the cultural ramifications of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, revolutionary militancy, and, and all of that uh, as it as it existed in the late 60s, as I have vague recollections of a child hearing about the Black Panthers and the Weathermen and the riots and, the, you know, all of all of that, all of that tumult from uh, those kind of formative years of my own life that I feel, even though I was not like engaged in politics as a child, it sort of set some templates that affected my future life as an adult. Um, so yeah, sort of uh, uh, investing hours of time into this little sojourn that Godard led us through. I think having more encounters with actors like Jean-Pierre Lyod, Anne Vizemsky, uh, Juliette Berto, she, she as a, as a, as a screen presence has been a real discovery. I'm really appreciated. I, I, you know, she did a good job in Vladimir and Rosa. I really enjoyed kind of getting to know her, so to speak, in, in Lake Savoir. I know she's one of the two leads in Celine and Julie Go Boating, which I've only watched like a portion of, never sat through the whole thing yet. But I'll definitely appreciate that movie with new eyes. And I might even go on a little Juliette Berteau exploration just to see what else she did. She just strikes me as a pretty remarkable young woman. And I want to know more about her work and what you know, what, what that led to, uh, in other expressions, uh, through the years. So yeah, there, there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on. Um, you know, I'm not going to give this a big thumbs up, go out and buy this set <laughs> recommendation <laughs> you can, because it's, it is, it, it is abstract. It is dry. It, there's definitely, you know, uh, you know, paint peeling on the wall and, and just some stuff that's really inexplicable and very hard to explain to friends and significant others as to why you're watching this and there's so many other <laughs> there are so many thousands of other great movies out there that you could pop in the player but i don't know to me it is it's just engaging with with all of these hot button issues uh even if you don't like the answers or you you know view the results with a bit of dubious disdain um I think I think I feel like I'm better off for having made this journey, and I can see myself possibly rewatching some of these down the road just just because you know, uh, just because I want to sort of re-experience that that peculiar uh, moment of alienation and and being morally philosophically adrift that it seems like Godard and his crew went through in those you know crazy pivotal years. So. Yeah, I think that's my summary statement on that. Um, so there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, John, any final comments before we uh, pull the curtain down on this episode? Well, I don't know if you're planning on uh, doing out one on this podcast. I think it was on the Criterion channel at one point, but I may be yeah. making that up. Maybe it was on Mubi. But that is like Juliet Berto lovers, you know, hey, yeah. rejoice. Because yep. yep. that's 13 yeah. hours. <laughs> <laughs> or 11 hours or whatever. Yeah. I think it's uh, 12. Yeah, no, it's 13 hours. And I've seen yeah. that. And believe okay. me, I'd much rather rewatch out one than have to rewatch the other four films in the Zero okay. Verge offset other than sure. British Sound. So that's okay. that's 
Uh, that's my take. <laughs> that's my take. Well, you know, whether it's on the Criterion Channel or not, I might just make a make an effort to do that. I've already broken enough of my own rules <laughs> for these two episodes, so uh, why why stop now? So that's a that's a great recommendation. And you're right. I, I, I do have that beautiful arrow box set sitting in there on my shelf, and I've I've dabbled and out one a little bit as well, but never made the you know gritty plunge right and say i'm gonna watch the whole damn thing <laughs> so, i want to say that right. as like a yeah. defense as a defense yeah. sometimes when i say to people like hey you know i fell asleep during that movie even though it's loved by a lot of people or it was made by like a great director mm-hmm. and i'm like i fell asleep uh, trying to watch it a couple of times it's not working on me like yeah. i want to point out i watched satan tango twice and i also watched out one and did not fall asleep so i feel like i have earned my street credibility as a film watcher so when i say i fell asleep during you know struggles in italy like that means something um (laughs) but no david thank you this is this is an adventure i probably would not have embarked upon if it were not for you pushing me uh, to do this uh, uh for the podcast and i'm so grateful that i did I'm also so grateful to go back to watching some mindless October yeah. horror films. <laughs> there you go. Yes, it is definitely time to, to just get into cinema <laughs> as, a, as a bit of entertainment and a diversion, uh, which is also enriching in its own way. But you're right. I mean, I, I feel like I've kind of run the gauntlet myself. And I equally, you know, mutual admiration thing here. I appreciate you taking the journey with me, John. I would not have wanted to do these episodes is kind of a solo podcast and it takes a special type of friend and, and uh, cinema enthusiast to, to say, yeah, let's saddle up and do this. So, you know, I, I am endlessly grateful for your willingness to, to, to take the journey alongside me. You brought great insight and uh, yeah, humor and, and all of that. So thank you so much for, uh, for making this happen. And I hope listeners, you've found this little, uh, excursion outside of the strict uh, 1972 chronology of this season of the podcast to be at least acceptable and hopefully a little bit more informative and thought-provoking uh, than maybe <laughs> the reputation of these films would lead you to believe. So uh, it's been a great conversation, John. A good four hours worth now here. So that's probably plenty. We'll go ahead and, and wrap it up now. Um, so yeah, next episode, we're going to get to it. I don't know the guest list exactly. We'll have to make some inquiries to see who's still on board with it. And then uh, we'll get that one going. I, Trevor and I are also talking about another uh, Inside the Box episode coming up in the next several weeks so we'll we're just kind of keep that podcast thing rolling so i will thank you all for listening i want to thank our supporters uh for criterion cast uh, who kind of donate through the patreon uh definitely you know just say thank you for people who you know keep our little humble website afloat and give uh, people like me uh, an opportunity to share my thoughts and, and reach an audience out there that might just be interested in listening in so with that, uh, that's the end of the episode. We'll see you next time uh, when all is well. Tupac PN. Bye bye.